to Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always, I can say that now because we're two episodes in, by Julia Alexander, Senior Strategy Analyst at Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. Welcome back. Hi, Jason. Back. Thank you. I know. This is so exciting. I've never (laughs) been welcomed back anywhere in my life. Wow. That's right. Your picture is up at various entrances. It's like, don't let her in. Basically, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it's good to be back uh, with our episode two, proving that we can do a podcast every other week. Uh, don't try to stop us. We're just going to keep doing it. Uh, and the, you know what this also means is we have follow-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do, from listeners, like you could do when you have a second episode. So um, we talked about Squid Game and about Netflix's sort of international aspirations and and plans and and content development. And uh, listener Liam wrote in to say, so far, everyone I've spoken to has watched Squid Game dubbed in English, sad emoji, and they complain about the bad acting, sad emoji. I wonder if international content will become mainstream or just the English dubbed international content. Um, I mean, step one is getting Americans to even watch dubbed content i guess and step two is then to get them to read the subtitles but the default i think is the english dub so that's what people are using i i I listened to the english dub and i thought if i'm gonna watch this properly i'm gonna switch to korean with subtitles because it was it was okay but i'm sure it's not as good yeah i mean i don't know about our listeners i'm someone who grew up on anime and so i grew up only but like i had subtitles on my programming always and that has like transition to English, even English speaking programming, I still have subtitles on. I can't watch anything without subtitles. Huh. So I... My daughter is the same way. It's definitely, I think maybe probably more of a generational thing, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. I really think it is. And I think too, like, I I don't know how old your daughter is, but I imagine like the TikTok generation, especially just because they're so used to putting closed captions on everything. She's 19. It's absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I'm, uh, I think to your point, exactly, Jason and, and um, Liam, I think to that point, that Netflix at this point is just hoping to get more global content in front of U.S. viewers and saying like, hey, we're going to give you as many options to watch this as possible. And hopefully I think they're they're going to get to the point where they're like, people will watch this with subtitles, hopefully going forward. Yeah. And I mean, I get that there are there are various issues about how people process information. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to read subtitles. Uh, sometimes Absolutely. sometimes it's a personal decision. It's literally I'm going to watch the show while I'm folding laundry and therefore I need to be able to hear the audio and look up occasionally. Like I have shows like that where it really only matters that I hear it. And and then there are other shows where you have to pay very close attention and watch it. And subtitles changes the game. I get it. It's a process, Mm -hmm. Liam. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Like (laughs) getting, again, getting Americans to watch a Korean program dubbed into English is is like, that's actually kind of a big step. And step two is to get them to to read subtitles. I do turn the subtitles on for... um, a lot of shows from the UK, though, because I have no idea what they're talking about. And I grew up on PBS watching um, BBC stuff. Uh, but still, there are occasionally that you get somebody with a very regional accent, which British TV is doing a better job of having people speak <laughs> yeah. real regional accents. And sometimes you're like, OK, Yorkshire, I don't mm, I, I can't. Oh, Newcastle, I don't really understand what you're saying. And then you you turn on the subtitles. It's... Me with every episode of Peaky Blinders. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that heavy Birmingham accent I got yep. put on. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's, it's great. There used to be that the regional accents didn't get uh, get played in UK TV, and they do now, but it is, we've all been trained as Americans and uh, Canadians, North Americans, to uh, to uh, understand that BBC accent and not the rest of them, and so it's harder. Just harder to yeah. of difficulty is all. Um, Listener Chris wrote in, um, we were talking about, again, subtitles and Squid Game. In terms of Netflix and their investment in subtitles, I wonder if their Americans with Disabilities lawsuit actually helped them get a lot of the in- infrastructure in place to do this. Back in 2012, it seemed like they were fighting this, saying it was impractical. But with this much international content, it seems like they would be in a lot of trouble without it. So that's an interesting idea. There, there was a lawsuit mm-hmm. saying that, you know, basically TV and streaming services are a public space that need to be, uh, need to have accessibility concerns and that Netflix fought it. But ultimately, you know, basically they followed the law and started to do this. And maybe they sort of unwillingly led themselves to a place that put them in a better position for international success. It's an interesting idea. 
Yeah, and I think too in 2012, Netflix was still trying to figure out its original content strategy in general, and Disney Plus wasn't around. None of the other streamers were around outside of uh, Hulu and CBS All Access, which we tend to forget about. But um, in terms of global plays, Netflix really was the first to do it. And I think when we look at what they were trying to do in 2012, it was just be embraced as a company doing entertainment. And now they are a company that is trying to embrace the globalization of content in a way that in fact a way that is faster than any other competitor so i think it's a combination of we have to do this because it it is more accessible and we want to be aware of how people watch television but also if they want their biggest hits to come from spain and south korea mexico brazil or germany which a lot of them do come from then they need to be able to say how can we present this in a way that is accessible to people our subscribers in every region Right. Uh, by the way, uh, I looked it up CBS All Access not until 2014. So 2012 really is the prehistory of streaming. Yeah. Way back, way back when. But yeah, that's a good point, Chris. Um, I, I think, of, uh, I think the history is full of these kinds of things where it's like, no, we can't do that. It wouldn't be possible. And then they're forced to do it, and they're like, oh, actually, it was not as hard or impractical as we thought, and it actually helps us. So, yeah, there's a lesson. And it works that again, like we were just talking about with your daughter, but I know myself too. We, I grew up, it was only captions. I have captions on everything. And I think for Netflix, there is a growing trend with younger subscribers to just put it on in general. And so for them to go, mm-hmm. we'll make sure that our caption system is as pleasurable to watch and as accessible for viewers. It kind of just helps them maintain young subscribers too, who are at the biggest risk of kind of churning and returning, which is a fun phrase that I read in Variety this week. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And we should talk about that a little bit more. I have one out, sort of outbound link before we get into the the big mm-hmm. topics, um, sort of somewhere in between follow-up and, and topics. Topics, uh, which is a piece at Business Insider by Natalie Jarvie and Elaine Lowe. Um, what's the hot place for creatives? And this is basically they talk to a bunch of uh, creative people and their representatives and ask them what do they think the best places were to shop uh, your shows, the places you really wanted to aspire to go to. <laughs> and uh, it's out there. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes if you're um, I ended up reading this. It's a subscriber uh, story, although I got through via Apple News, so I'll put an Apple News link in there too. But to the short summary is HBO is still tops, um, viewed as the most artist-friendly. And then HBO Max is sort of like coming along and the hacks winning a bunch of Emmys kind of helped sort of get HBO Max sort of viewed in that same way. But they're also very selective with what they do. I was surprised to see Apple TV Plus next, but they like big name stars. They are also selective like HBO and they they spend a lot of money. And I think people like that, like would like to work with Apple because they spend money. (laughs) Funny how that works. It turns out that if you have more money than God, because your company rakes really, really cool laptops that are finally very fun again, which is a whole other podcast (laughs) that Jason can talk about on. Yeah, they have the money there. They have the money to uh, spend a little bit of extra dough on really good TV shows and movies. Yeah. So I, I've been saying for a while now that Apple TV Plus is sort of like just trying to do the HBO playbook. And this this story sort of says, yeah, they, they are. That's what it is. They're selective. They like their stars and they spend a lot of money. To the point that they signed a, a massive producer deal with uh, Richard Kluffler, who was the yep. former head of HBO and kind of made that network into what it was that we remember in the early 2010s and kind of on. Yeah, they're they're replaying the hits from HBO um, <laughs> as HBO struggled with HBO Max and all of that. But HBO is still on top. I think that's interesting. Netflix, the next level down, still obviously huge. But the perception that they're in transition as Netflix starts to seek sort of broader content like reality shows and kids shows. Um, also, definitely um, the idea that there's some some people who feel a little discomfort over the whole uh, Dave Chappelle thing, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Prime Video down below there, sort of seen as an up-and-comer, even though Prime Video's been around a long time, because Jen Salke, who now runs that, she's only been in charge since 2018, and is, the perception is she's still kind of like putting it all together. Um, they definitely have an audience, but haven't had a, a big breakthrough story and are more cost-conscious than somebody like Apple. So mm-hmm. like it's sort of seen as a potential giant, but that they haven't, they're looking for a sign that they haven't seen yet from Amazon. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's what the interesting thing about the difference in how creatives in Hollywood feel about Prime Video versus Apple TV Plus is both of these companies are massive, massive Silicon Valley um, corporations and conglomerates that can afford to put in $30 billion worth of content investment if they wanted to. And I think the fact that creatives in the industry, according to Business Insider, feel that Amazon Prime Video um, is still figuring stuff out and is almost pulling back a little bit outside of massive IP, because of course, we know they're spending half a billion dollars alone on Lord of the Rings, um, that show coming out, I think that speaks to where their priorities lie versus Apple still feels, you know, just coming into two years, still feels like it's they're investing heavily into this and it's an area that they want to pursue. So I, I think that was an interesting point for me to kind of look at, which is Amazon, Apple could be the biggest players in the space that they wanted to just by virtue of their revenue every quarter. Um, But it it speaks to Apple saying, we want to align with creatives and this is important to us. And Amazon saying, well, let's figure out what we want to do with Prime Video this many years in. And then um, last one on the list, but uh, this list is sort of specifically, these are the ones that people talked about as the most... uh, friendly and and appealing places to go is Hulu which you know with the Disney acquisition um there's a bu- been a bunch of executive changes there and people are a little more wary it sounds like but they built up a lot of goodwill Handmaid's Tale first um streamer show to win uh, a best show Emmy award and and you get the sense that that is part of it is like do they have the ability to have a show that break through like Handmaid's Tale did and more recently citing only Murders in the Building, which just had its uh, finale as as a show, which all, also a comedy um, comedy mystery, but you know um, that 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 has broken through. That there's still positivity to Hulu, even though they're going through some changes. So Hulu makes the list, and uh, and all the others, Peacock and Paramount Plus, and all that didn't didn't make this list, which I think is interesting unto itself. Yeah, I think that speaks volumes about where we see Peacock and and Paramount Plus specifically. But I think with Hulu, a really good point about uh, that you just made um, that we should reiterate is Hulu for the longest time was kind of a great aggregator. So original content, although a priority, could kind of take a back seat because their whole thing was they had next day viewing and they had this massive, massive catalog base. And as Hulu will, as as Hulu under the Walt Disney Corporation starts to explore what the rights deals look like with these companies, including NBC Universal and Viacom, CBS and Warner Media, who are potentially going to pull their own um, um, titles back. Hulu has to invest heavily in original series to be a to one be a uh, a valuable product for consumers but two to really prep up that bundle and that's what disney really wants is how does hulu play into ensuring that u.s subscribers stay within the disney streaming service bundle yeah so they're they're figuring it out and there's there's a lot of change happening there mm-hmm. um interesting uh let's let's move on to like the real we'll dig in we got some topics to talk about today um <laughs> netflix like let's mm-hmm. we, let's go back and talk about they're they're a giant here so we're going to talk about them a lot they had their quarterly results this week uh added 4.4 million subscribers versus 2.2 million in quarter three of 2020 so the year ago quarter ended up with 214 million subscribers what did you you know what were your takeaways from uh the, the you know quarterly results are our one chance for a lot of secretive companies to to like give us like little scraps of information so that we could try to understand their business <laughs> yeah thank god for public companies yeah. um i think so not a fantastic quarter not a terrible quarter it was the type of quarter netflix needed to really appease shareholders who are a little bit concerned coming off not two great quarters where subscriber additions were a little bit low. They were losing subscribers in key territories like the United States and Canada. Um, this quarter, they added 70,000 subscribers, which not much, but kind of speaks to the penetration levels that they're seeing, which is if you were going to have Netflix in the United States, you probably already have it. So those 70,000 additions are likely lapsed subscribers, people who went away and came back. And that could have been for Squid Game. It could have been for La Casa de Papal, which is Money Heist over here. Um, so we don't really know the breakdown of that. But what I will say about their quarter is that it made me very interested to see their fourth quarter. They are about to have, just based on kind of demand for content alone that we're seeing, uh, that I'm seeing, they're going to have a massive fourth quarter, um, which should hopefully 
remind people uh, and especially shareholders that Netflix had a bit of a lull. They hit some production issues like everyone else with COVID. It just happened later for them. They had to figure out what they're going to do with their films and television shows. And now they're back into it. And now they can kind of come back with their play all the hits. This is their moment to really shine. And so my question from the third quarter is actually, how does this set up the fourth quarter? And where does that put Netflix in the next three months? Yeah, the... um. That's all. That's all really good. Like they're so successful now that they have a different game that they have to play of retention and yes. calling people back. It's come back. <laughs> we got a <laughs> we got a new show. Whereas so many other services, I think, are just all about can we get can we convince people to try us? <laughs> exactly. And I think Reed Hastings spoke to this right. Where Reed, I think, in the not the most recent earnings, I, I believe it was the call before that, specifically said. We know we are going to, you know, lose some subscribers from time to time, but we hope that we get to bring you back because we have your favorite show or your new favorite show. And they are hitting, you know, everyone's focused on the streaming wars and Reed and the team are focused on the churn wars. They're focused on, okay, we are at a point where we can continue to grow and we hope to, of course, but how do we keep these subscribers that we have when they have so much more comp uh, options elsewhere. Yeah. And we talked about this in the last um, podcast, Jason, but when it's never been easier to cancel, like I am almost jealous of kids who will never have to call cable companies <laughs> to try and change their service in any way. Cause that was like a nightmarish experience that I feel a lot of us have gone through. Um, but was like you just didn't even try because it was just so nightmarish to do anything with your cable company. And now if someone doesn't want to watch Netflix anymore because they want to watch Hawkeye on Disney Plus and they only want to pay for one or two services, they can just cancel and then go back whenever Squid Game Season 2 comes out. Well, so you mentioned churn and return, and we should probably mm -hmm. talk about it. It's a great phrase. I love it. Yes. Which is something that you pointed out um, nearly half of millennials – this was a variety report – 47% and 34% of Gen Z in the U.S. canceled and then resubscribed to the same video service within the last 12 months, according to a study from Deloitte, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, my first thought is is exactly your thought, which is it's so much easier. Um, and there's some some regulations that have made that easier. And it's all just, you know, you've got these services that are online and it really is about turning it on and turning it off. And you can do it with a few clicks, which makes it very easy to kind of exit and then re-enter again. Whereas if you're, you know, if you've got cable and you want to go to satellite, like you've got to not only go through a hassle of canceling, but you've got to have the installer come out, install the new thing, and you've got to send your cable box back. And then if you want to switch back, you got to do it in reverse. Now you've got a satellite dish on your roof and you got to send that box back and get the cable <laughs> installer back out and rewire all your TVs. And so it doesn't happen. You you end up with a lock-in that's based on hardware. And now with, with streaming, like your internet is already there. All you're doing is turning services on and off. It couldn't be easier to do. And so you get more churn. Exactly. And so I can say anecdotally from my perspective, I'm someone who's canceled Peacock like twice and then returned to it for something and then canceled again, which is I'm so sorry to NBC Universal <laughs> listeners who have to work there. But it's just that that catalog, which is a phenomenal catalog of, of old titles, and I love it. They're also available on Netflix and Hulu. And if I want to watch something new, which I recently did for Halloween Kills, I'm going to go and subscribe to it again and then basically stop. But I think what this leads to for um, the streaming companies themselves is I think a crackdown on two things. One, I think we will see in the years to come more locked in annual subscribers. I think they will say we want to lock you in for a bit of a discounted price, but you have to do 12 months. And I think that mm. will give them the chance to introduce new shows and hopefully really uh, and build up their catalog and hopefully really keep subscribers there for as long as possible. Um, but two, I think what we're about to see with Netflix especially is a crackdown on password sharing. They've kind of hinted at this. They've kind of rolled out tests for this a little bit to see what they what, what it would look like. But if you have a penetration rate of, of 74 million households in the United States who have Netflix, you kind of gain, you know, 70,000 this quarter, you lose about like 440,000, I believe, last quarter. You're kind of in this game of like losing some and gaining a little bit back. A big part of that is you've got a bunch of people sharing Netflix accounts. And so if I'm Netflix and I can right. increase that number from 74 million to potentially, you know, 150 million in one country, I'm going to find a way to do that. How does Netflix view when that time comes? They have to have a pretty consistent string of hits that are seeing people who are at risk of leaving 
not really leaving and who are bringing in, you know, they're, they're seeing high acquisition titles. They're seeing more and more original series bringing in subscribers that are maybe lapsed. I think that's when you kind of go, our proposition value has never been better. So let's try to crack down on password sharing, knowing we might lose some customers in the short term, but in the long term, it pays off. So I think those are my two predictions that we're going to see happening with these streaming services because of churn and return, which I agree, Jason, just I love it. I love that term. That's great. <laughs> Anything that rhymes is good. The um, uh, th there are some other ways they could do it too, right? Like they could do mm -hmm. some technical things and basically say we have. They've done this a little bit, but they could do it more where it's not so much we want you to do a separate account, but we want you to pay more yes. for an account uh, that yes. that uh, has more ability to do more streams and more places and all of that. I actually just did. I'm actually doing this with Sling of all things, so an over-the-top TV service. You know where it was very easy for me to subscribe because my I use Fubo as my over-the-top service. It doesn't have TBS. TBS has the baseball National League baseball playoffs on it, and I realized well I can just sign up for Sling for one month to get that channel and they have a $10 trial. So it's, it's cheap. And uh, then I'll just cancel it. And that's super easy. Um, but what I found is sling and Fubo have completely different systems for checking uh, whether you're password sharing. And I didn't yes. realize that. And Fubo um, basically won't checks what IP address you're on for devices that are attached to a TV set and will lock out. You can only have one. So essentially, my daughter can watch on our Fubo account from her college apartment on a phone or a laptop, but not on an Apple TV because our Apple TV is the home for that. And um, and that it's just where a sling doesn't care literally doesn't care. And and you know, it's hard. It's it's actually technically hard and you make it harder for your paying customers. So there are lots of reasons to shy away from it, but eventually you're also saying but we want the money uh, and I get that. So um but I'm I am taking advantage of 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 churn. Will I return? I don't know, maybe next year when the playoffs are back and I can go back to to sling, but maybe not until then. I also was struck by um you know, this is why when you do a weekly program rollout um, the goal there is we spread out our content and you have to stay with us. You can't, you know, like if we always have something for you to watch, it's the HBO model again, right? You know, you can't cancel HBO just because the Sopranos went off because now here's Boardwalk Empire or whatever. I don't know about the time frames, but you you get what I'm exactly. saying. It's like you, you, you try to make it hard. Like John Oliver is one of the things that did it for me with HBO. I didn't play, pay for HBO for years. And then Game of Thrones came on. I was like, okay, I'm interested. And then they did John Oliver, and that's 30 weeks a year or something. It's like, all right, HBO, you got me. Like, that's part of the trick. Um, although a lot of people will just say, I'll just wait, and I'll binge it when it's done. And they sign up for one month, binge something, and then they're they're out. And you can do that. It's just easy to do that. Exactly. And and to your point about everyone following into the HBO method, which is, if we're being very honest, they are just following the broadcast and traditional linear method of saying we need to have weekly content because advertisers or right. the cable package needs to have weekly content um, and daily content, really. I think when we look at that, they're the best example of that happening in the streaming space is Disney Plus, who goes, we're going to have a, a new Marvel or a new Star Wars or a new Pixar original, whatever it might be, a new film. We're going to something every single week. Because if, again, if you're opening that app, and I think that's what's really complicated for a lot of these streaming services that are coming from traditional entertainment conglomerates. When you look at Peacock and Paramount Plus coming from NBC Universal and Viacom CBS, what it's hard for them to kind of understand is it's not just having a great content slate. You have to give people a reason to open that app every single day or at least a couple times a week for it to feel like a necessity when yep. they're looking at their monthly bills. They got to say, you know, I haven't opened Peacock in this month outside of one time. Why am I going to pay for Peacock versus Netflix or Disney Plus? I open up Netflix once a day. It's got, you know, Seinfeld. I want to watch it I, or it's got Squid Game. And then if I look at Disney Plus every week, there's a new show that episode of a show that I want to watch. or There's a movie I want to watch like that is much harder for me to cancel. You add in the fact that someone has young kids and Disney Plus is just an automatic yes. Yeah. And so if you are looking at a household that has maybe three to four entertainment subscription services on top of a new subscription or a music subscription or a food subscription, whatever it might be, it's really hard to compete for that space. And if all you're doing is doing binge releases, then it becomes much harder to open that app every day. And I think we see this with Netflix, who is experimenting with weekly releases. And I think we'll get to a point where they do weekly releases for some of their big shows.
Yeah, I I use the, and I know I've used it here, the Star Trek example, which I know is what Paramount Plus, among the many things that they're doing, their goal is to sort of have Star Trek at all times because they know yes. there's some people, and I am one of them, who is going to pay for to watch Star Trek. And so <laughs> we want 52 weeks of Star Trek, essentially, so that you can never escape Paramount Plus. And, you know, everybody wants to do that. You can never escape Star Wars and Marvel you, you know, on Disney Plus, you have to just always keep it locked in. That's the that's the dream. That's a little right. uh, it's a little dystopian dream. You know, if we're on the topic of Squid Game and dystopia, having <laughs> using Marvel and Star Wars to lock someone into a monthly annual payment. Yeah. Oh, sorry, excuse me, an annual subscription fee. That is that is a little bit of the dark side coming through. Ooh. I think. that's right. Well, yeah. you can just or you can just wait and binge it, but you can't be part of the conversation. <laughs> then you just have to wait. That's the trick. Um. Okay, so back to Netflix. Uh, another thing that that happened is uh, that they announced that they're going to change their reporting metrics, which uh, you made some interesting points about, like the different ways that Netflix has disclosed how they measure how people watch their shows. Because obviously, it, it's a black box other than when Netflix um, discloses the data. They know what everybody's watching, but we don't necessarily ever hear about it. And they announced that they're going to shift to reporting on total hours viewed for movies and TV shows on the service rather than the number of accounts that choose to watch them. Now, there were cha- there were challenges with that, right? Because how do you define the number of accounts? It is Are they watching to completion? Are they watching a little bit? You know, And I think they defined it as, as two minutes. They started that content. Yeah. Um, and then there's like the watchers, which is not a hundred percent. You, you said it's 70%. So we've got three different completion metrics plus this new metric, which is uh, total hours viewed, which obviously you're going to have to calibrate based on the number of hours of content in the package, because a half hour show with eight episodes is going to do four hours. That's a, an hour show with eight episodes. It's eight hours and a movie is two hours. You're going to have to do the, the math there. But uh, what do you think about this switch and you know is it helpful or is it just yet another problematic you know hard to calibrate number (laughs) i have you know i've had a bunch of thoughts about this over the last 12 hours whenever they announced it um because obviously this is you know the, the kind of key the race to figure out the best way to look at metrics in the streaming space is a very very near and dear um story to my heart but I think it, it get, what it does for Netflix is it's a big PR move, right? It says to people, we get it. You don't trust the two-minute metric that we're giving. Cause, and, and for anyone listening, the two metrics, if, if you're not aware of it, the two-minute reason, the reason they use that, according to them, is that it shows intention to watch, is that you purposely clicked on it, you watched at least two minutes, um, and therefore there's an intention to watch this program or this movie. And so they, before that, would use the 70%, this kind of watcher um, figure, which made a lot of sense. That was kind of like, you know, you watch 70%, the chance of you finishing that is pretty good, or you've watched at least the majority of it to kind of pay off for what they're doing. Um, What matters to Netflix in terms of value is very different than what mattered to the linear networks. And if we think of the kind of traditional metric system, which would have been companies like Nielsen back in the day, kind of looking into it. The reason that they had total minutes watched was for advertisers. It was here's so many people are tuning in day of or after three days or after seven days to this program. And here's what it means for the household penetration that you are seeing with your brand. With a streaming service, especially one without ads, the value of content becomes much more individual. It becomes, well, how much did this one title lead to viewers watching another Netflix title? How how important is this title in retaining customers for six months? Is it something that they come back to every night? You know, all these different questions come into play. So when we look at why is Netflix releasing numbers this way, the two answers that I can think of is one, they're getting a lot of pressure from creatives and press to be more transparent. And two, this system is in line with more traditional metric reporting that doesn't work in a one-to-one comparison with streaming, but is something that people understand. And so they go, we're going to release total hours viewed. Now, the interesting thing that's going to come out of this, because it's still a very vague number, you look at something like Squid Game and they say, you know, according to Bloomberg, I believe it was 1.4 billion hours viewed. There's no breakdown in where those hours came from. How many of those, you know, what is the the, the um, breakdown in United States viewer, household viewership versus England versus Germany versus South Korea? What does that look like? 
So that is key. I mean, if you are trying to understand how many people in the U.S. are really watching um, Squid Game, I think, you know, it doesn't answer what does this mean for Netflix's investment in, in future content? What does this mean for Netflix's investment in, in um, renewed seasons or canceled seasons? So when we think about metrics for streaming, we really have to figure out what, how does the perception of value per title change now versus on a linear network? And that's kind of the fun cross uh, roads we're at. Yeah, the idea that I, I love the idea that two minutes, which seems pointless, but it is a it's essentially a click, right? Like a click on a, on the web doesn't mean that you read the story. It just means exactly. that you clicked and it, it is an indication of intention. And that's about it. Um, but, you know, creators also people don't understand mostly the people who create stuff for Netflix and elsewhere don't know how it did. Like they yes. don't know. They have no idea or they have vague ideas about how it did. They, Netflix really keeps that stuff to itself. I'm sure that frustrates creative people. I'm sure that frustrates their uh, their agents. Um, but the, we, you know, the press, like, you're right. There is no way, one way to have a metric that that describes how successful a show is like ratings were for broadcast where you've got ads. And this was also true when they reported ratings for like HBO. It's like HBO doesn't sell ads. Ratings isn't the point. The point is subscriptions. And that's yes. way more complicated. It's like this is part of a larger strategy to keep people on the service and to stop churn and all of those things. But part of what we want out here in the press is, is this a hit? Is this in the zeitgeist? Are people yes. talking about it? Are people really watching it? Or are they just talking about it? That's And that's also intangible. But I feel like, you know, the watchers, 70%, maybe is better than completers or starters. But the hours thing, it's probably not a bad ballpark. None of these are going to be perfect. But they do at least serve the purpose of like, all of us saying, are people actually watching this or is it just in my little bubble that people are talking about this? How big a hit is this? How much does this thing matter? And exactly. And 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 that's you know, Zeitgeist measurement isn't a business model either, but it, it does, and I'm sure that agents and talent also want to know that number, right? Like lots of people watched. Cause how do you how do you say like Squid Game or uh only murders in the building? Like how do we say is that a is that a hit is it not you know apple can renew foundation which was going to be renewed anyway and declare it a hit but like did anybody watch it is anybody watching it did anybody finish it we don't know but at least we would have some idea of like literally the number of hours people invested out of their lives to watch the content and make some judgments based on that so it's you know better than nothing i guess absolutely and i think if we look at the kind of economic value of knowing real-time viewership, there's two great examples of this, right? So on the one hand, we can look at what I always point to as probably the greatest form of public information about what is considered popular in entertainment sphere, which up until recently was the box office report, right? It was like, this right. is how many people went out, paid money, saw this thing, and it was a one-to-one -one relationship between ticket holder and kind of um, their their portion of, of, of box office revenue. So that was important to companies like Disney because they could go, great, we made a movie, it's popular, the Hollywood Reporter Variety declare us a popular movie, but the more money we make at the theaters, the more return we're going to get when we are negotiating pay one windows with companies like, like HBO who want to then pay to have those Marvel movies or those Star Wars movies. So it was a huge revenue boost to have these kind of numbers. And the other side of it, which is where we are now, we look at what were the most in-demand shows on Netflix for the longest time, it was Friends in the Office. Yeah. This did not mean that hundreds of millions of people were watching Friends in the Office every single day, all day. It just meant over a time period, these shows generated a lot of views because people returned to them. Now for Netflix, great to know that people are watching content like that. That's great for them and it's keeping them engaged. Better for Netflix, the, the valuation of that content means that people are not canceling. And if you're not canceling and you're a company like Netflix, you make your revenue via incremental price increases, usually annually or every 18 months. And if you can say we have a really low churn and we, are, we have titles like Squid Game that are bringing in high acquisition subscribers, you're at the point where you can go, yeah, we'll, we'll boost the price another dollar or two and people are going to stick around. And so the value of something is much different. It goes beyond viewership metrics. Viewership is important. 
they have to know that people are watching the show. But what's more important, or what is equally important, I should say, is like, what is the customer affinity? What is the re what is their adoration for a type of show or two or three shows that that's the reason they are staying subscribed? And so I think we really have to change the conversation about metrics from being one to one, like here's so many people watch this one thing and therefore it's the biggest thing in the world. And it's more cool. Squid Game brought in, you know, let's say hypothetically they brought in, I don't know, a million subscribers worldwide. Let's say hypothetically brings in a million subscribers. Of those million, how many are staying because of Squid Game or how many are staying because of New Girl or how many are staying because of, of Sherlock, whatever it might be. That's when Netflix goes, the increased value of a show like New Girl or Sherlock or, or, or Money Heist is that that's what people are staying for. And that's why they're not canceling. And so I think we really just need to keep that in mind as we have conversations about the importance of public metrics. Yeah, it's it's there's a lot. It's it's complicated. It's like it's complicated. Um, there's a lot. Everybody everybody cares about something different. Like ultimately, in, in talking for years with Tim Goodman about this on the TV Talk Machine podcast, like he talked to producers and writers and actors at at you know television critics association roadshows and things like that. And he said, you know, in the end, you think about these people as being very important creative people and and sometimes as business people and the truth is i think that a lot of them it all boils down to did anybody watch mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. and that's not you know if you're if you're running netflix it's complicated but if you're if you're talent it's just like did anybody see it are people talking about it did you promote it make mm -hmm. that's what makes them feel good is like looking out at the theater and seeing that there are people sitting in the, in the chairs that's what matters to them and I think also if you go back to negotiations to your exact point, Jason, if you know your show is doing really well and is therefore of value to Netflix, when you go back to negotiate mm -hmm. for a new season or for another deal, you can go in and say, I mean, I think about that with agents and um, box office superstars, right? We look at Chris Hemsworth and Robert Downey Jr. They get paid because they can point to the box office and say, yeah, look, we brought, you know, we brought this much money. This was the whole Scarlett Johansson argument with Disney. It's like, I am a star that helps bring in additional revenue. Therefore, I should be properly um, compensated for that. And I think with Netflix, if you don't have that as a creative, as a producer, whatever it might be, it's really hard to go to a bargaining table and say, hey, we deserve more. Perfect segue into the other Netflix topic that we need to at least mention here, which mm -hmm. is more broadly about bargaining tables, about employee action. Um, as we record this, this is the day of the virtual walkout at Netflix by Netflix employees. This is a story about, we'll put links into the show notes if you don't know about it, but it's about the Dave Chappelle special where he basically says, I don't believe in transgender people essentially and that he and and he calls himself a turf and says that he allies himself with with jk rowling and trans employees and their allies within netflix basically said this is kind of outrageous that our company is putting this kind of content out there that makes our lives uh scarier and makes the world more dangerous for us. And there were Ted Sarandos said a, a, a memo around that basically said, we believe in freedom of speech for our, 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 our creators. And that didn't really go well. So then he reappeared in deadline and variety and a bunch of other places yesterday with interviews that were calculated to say, well, okay, I could have worded that better. And he sort of apologized without not really apologizing that much. And so a, a bunch of people are going to do a, vir a virtual or in some cases where they're real, real walkout at, at uh, Netflix today as we record this. Uh, so, you know, this is a there's a much broader canvas here about uh, about people who work, especially in Silicon Valley companies, speaking up about things that their companies do that they don't like. But Netflix is the one that is in the center of this. And I think really telling that Ted Sarandos needed to do sort of an apology tour um, after his first memo was not, it was really tone deaf and it was not well received. Right. And I, you know, I think I, I want to ask you this question, Jason, because you are an expert on the company I'm about to mention. But in my experience, back when I used to be a reporter, kind of reporting on Netflix, the way Netflix employees really felt about the company reminded me a lot of what I would hear from um, other reporter friends about Apple and this idea of there were not a lot of leaks, there were not a lot of stuff happening yep. because. The, the the employees really felt like that one-to-one -one relationship 
with Netflix. And that was that's fair to say of Apple, correct? Like Apple has that really big employee. Like we're just proud to kind of be Apple employees. I think I think it's similar in the in that they were like that, and now both companies are 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 seeing the limits of that, where people yes. are, who work at both of these companies are less afraid of speaking out about things that matter to them. And and uh, yeah, there there's a series of stories uh, on the verge about this, and I'm quoted in one of them. But like, yeah, the, the, it used to be very much like we just keep it in the family, and yes. there is a new generation of people working at these companies who say, no, we're not going to keep quiet about this. This is something that is unacceptable, and we're going to make our voices heard. Exactly. And so I think there are a few different things like to point out just very quickly about Netflix as a whole right now. One is the business story, right, which is their stock is I think I think I haven't I have to double check, but their stock is up. They are profitable. They are seeing big revenue. They had a good quarter. That's one story. Then the other story, and I would argue the much more important story, the much more important story is a big manager crisis at Netflix, which is we, uh, you know, you have a group of employees of trans employees and LGBTQ plus employees who are saying we don't feel heard, who are saying we have tried to communicate with management, who are saying we want to feel safe in our company and to feel safe in public. And we feel that this type of special really harms our our community. And what you then have at the center of this is this really, you know, jostling juxtaposition moment of Ted Sarando's bragging about how well Squid Game is doing and bragging about the performance of the previous Dave Chappelle special, the one that came out before this most recent one. And and at the same time, then going on a late night apology tour last night saying, you know, I screwed up, I should have listened better and I, and I promised to do more, but not really, as far as I know, meeting any of the demands that have been requested by the um, by some trans workers and LGBTQ plus workers, including Will you put a warning message in front of the Dave Chappelle special? And as far as I know, I think he believe I, I believe he told the reporter or Variety he's not going to do that at this point. Or I, I believe he said Netflix won't do that at this point. And so uh, there's these two different stories happening, but the center of it is this moment of of change, hopefully for Netflix, where Ted Sarandos goes, "Yeah, we we are content providers, and we and we are selecting what goes on our platform, and we have 214 million subscribers globally, and also." What is happening inside our office building is happening in conversation worldwide, and we have to be aware of how our content is perceived by groups, that, especially groups that are, are at high risk of, of facing real-world harm because of a lot of um, of just hatred that they that they can face in the real world. And so I think as much as we talk about business a lot in this podcast, because I'm an analyst and I know that you are a long-time reporter and you're just a very, like, a very intelligent person, we really need to prioritize, like, there is this conversation happening that's much more important than Netflix's bottom line earnings. It is yeah. how do they how do employees feel and what does that say about the world, you know? Yeah, and I get I get it when people say, Well, wait a second, you know, they're they're um they don't like something that they that their their company puts out. Their company puts out lots of stuff. Do all the employees there need to like everything that they put out? And like in broad terms, no, that's true. Right. They don't. Um, there is a question of where you draw lines and when you've got groups that are marginalized and that feel threatened in the world and that the world is a dangerous place for them and that you talk about their, you know, their successful content that they're proud of, um, amplifying a voice who's essentially saying, um, don't, don't believe them and they don't exist as this. And, and their fear is that they're making the world a more dangerous place by, for trans people by putting Dave Chappelle's special out in it. Like I, I appreciate a creative executive like Ted Sarando saying, we want to give our creators, we want to be a welcoming home for creators to say what they believe. At the same time, I'm pretty sure that if there was a stand-up special that came to Netflix, even if it was lucrative, and the uh, there was an extended bit in it that was uh, anti-gay and said that gay people should disappear or whatever or was racist and said that people of a certain color or mm -hmm. from a certain location should disappear or go back to their countries or whatever, that they, they would be on the other side of a pretty clear line. And they'd be like, no, that's unacceptable. And what the people at Netflix are saying is, um, why'd you draw the line there for Dave Chappelle and, and not on the other side of the line? And that, that for our lives that that matters that line matters and and because he's so successful you're letting him say this stuff and and you know it sounds like there's a conversation going on here as well that is a maybe bigger more important thing which is people at Netflix saying 
is Netflix making enough of an attempt to program diversely uh, and get other voices who aren't Dave Chappelle in the conversation, right? Because it's not just exactly. it's not just Dave Chappelle should have a voice. It's okay, you gave him a voice. Who else are you giving a voice? Uh, who has other views on this sort of thing. But um, I don't know. It's complicated. It's messy. Um, I think it's interesting that there's the bigger issue of the employees basically standing up and saying, wait a second. Like, if if they don't do it, who's going to do it? To say, I know that these specials are lucrative, but can you turn an eye away from what's in them because they're so successful? Yeah, and I think to your exact point, Jason, that it's a really good point you brought up, which is there are going to be decisions made that not everyone is happy with. And that is a part of a growing pain of a company. You look at a Google or Apple or Facebook, you know, 50,000, 60,000 employees. Um, there are going to be some employees who are upset about something, and, and that just kind of happens. But I think what Netflix is really beginning to experience is this moment of, oh, we are a massive global company. We have to have people in our executive ranks. We have to have people in a C-suite of ranks that can speak to these issues. And it always what it always kind of reminds me of whenever Snapchat or Instagram would put out a filter that was in, very insensitive um, or controversial. And it was just like, did you have anyone in the room who right. could say like, this feels weird and we shouldn't do it or we should really examine this or we should ask some people about how they feel about this. And what really jarred me about the original reporting, which um, Zoe Schiffer over at The Verge yep. and Lucas Shaw over at Bloomberg have done a phenomenal job doing, um, was Ted Sarandos in the original memo that got leaked saying, listen, like some people are not going to be happy with the content we put out, but we stand by our creatives. And then in that same memo saying, also, the other Dave Chappelle special, which was controversial as well, did really well for us. And it's that moment of being like, yeah. read the room a little bit. Um, and another great person to read on this is Matt Bellany over at Puck. And he just kind of wrote about very extensively how this is a, an issue with Ted Serrano's is just, to Ted Serrano's point, screwed up on the entire way. And I, I just, I really hope that those employees today who are walking out and um, are heard and get to have that moment with that face-to-face with the executive team. Yeah, it's a complicated issue, but um, it is happening now. And I, I think more broadly, you, you made the point on Twitter this week that um, Netflix is a uh, a tech company. It's also an entertainment industry company. And this is one of those interesting things. And Apple is now also an entertainment industry company as well as yeah. a tech company. And Hollywood, you know, Silicon Valley, traditionally a non-union business. And although there's organization that happens there, tech has been sort of repellent of uh, labor organizing. Hollywood is a union shop, right? Hollywood is all about the unions. And in fact, there is a union action going on right now with the IATSE uh, uh, strike vote taken and approved, but then they made a deal, but it might not get approved. And that's all going on, including a bunch of things regarding actually pay for streaming and improving that and improving break time. But but just think about that, that um, we have a culture clash of a different kind here, which is we have an industry that has a very strong presence in organized labor and in workers uh, organizing to get what they need to improve their lot. Uh, and you've got some companies that really come from a tech industry perspective where that doesn't happen. And I think that that's a source of at least some of the friction when it comes especially to Netflix. Yes, I think that's exactly very well said. Um, All right. I'm sure there'll be more about this in the weeks ahead. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Halloween Kills. I wanted to touch on that a little little briefly before we get to letters. Um, uh, Peacock, uh, I guess, do I have to say it's Peacocktober? Oh, October. Come on. October and Halloween, which and actually Halloween is that's phenomenal. much better. That's much better. <laughs> so you mentioned Halloween kills uh and and in the context too of of picking turn and return, right? Picking up and then and then letting it go uh to watch that movie on Peacock. It was also in theaters and it did well at the box office. Um but it sounds like what 1.2 million US households according to Samba TV watched Halloween kills on Uh, Peacock with viewership peaking on Saturday. So it's just, you know, it's another example of um, in this case, instead of going out to the theater, you could just subscribe to Peacock and watch it. And then the question is, presumably you would then exit Peacock. Although, I don't know, maybe you stick around and watch some other scary movies or watch some sitcoms or whatever else is on Peacock. 
Yeah, and I think what was interesting about Peacock in this way, and I was actually slightly wrong on Twitter, which does happen. It does happen. I was slightly wrong. Um, I thought, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I thought that the box office success of Halloween Kills would mean that the performance on Peacock probably wasn't as strong. And what we saw, I think, was a rare thing in streaming, which was it did really well at the box office. Yeah. And it was at the top of the charts of, of the App Store and Google Play. And according to Samba TV, it did pretty well in the households in the U.S. Um, that's, you know, to put that in comparison, uh, the the Real Saints of Newark, which was the Sopranos prequel movie, right. brought in about a million viewers, according to Samba, um, and hit, and, but did very poorly in theaters. Halloween Kills, really great in theaters. And horror movies tend to do pretty well in, in cinema, especially right. over the pandemic. They've, they've outperformed everything else to, outside of Marvel. Um, and I, But I think what this speaks to is day and date can work. It just needs to be a specific type of title. And so Halloween Kills, right? Big franchise title. A lot of interest in the cast who is coming into it. Um, uh, there, there's an IP that people really, really know. And we're at a point where people feel safer going to cinemas. But if you want to stay home, you can just get Peacock and you can get a pretty cheap tier and you can watch it that way. Um, I believe. I think it was available uh, on the cheap tier, although I could be wrong. Again, I could be wrong. Um, it, it, it does. You know, we're only human here. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> Many States of Newark. We talked last last time about how um, it, it tanked at the box office. I did see a story this week that said what HBO at least said is it did pretty well on HBO Max and the other thing it did is it drove a lot of Sopranos watching on HBO Max and I thought well that's really interesting where in the end even if the movie is considered kind of a flop it may be totally worth it for HBO because what it did was remind people of something in their catalog which is such an oblique way like what a reason to make a movie uh, to remind people of the show that you used to have that's still available for streaming. And yet it is kind of an ad for streaming The Sopranos on HBO Max. So, you know, I guess I guess this is the theme of this episode, right? Which is everybody's got uh, different measurements for what is successful. And, and I think that is what every streaming service is also doing. I mean, when you look at Disney+, Plus, uh, they release these little what are basically advertisements they're basically just little recaps of what was happening in certain movies as they pertain to the tv shows coming out that was just a recommendation of what to watch yeah. before the sh- or after the show and it was like it worked i mean i watched i rewatched a bunch of old movies that were on hbo max excuse me disney plus ahead of wandavision ahead of falcon winter soldier totally um and it's like that's the goal well, and if that works for hbo max you know remember hbo max uh spent a huge amount of money for the friends reunion and it wasn't even an actual scripted show. It was just a let's get the cast together to talk about the show. And like, why do they spend all that money? It's because they they got friends on HBO Max and they want people to say, oh, yeah, we should watch Friends again. Like, literally, that's why they did it. And they're, they're, I think there's something to be said for that. It's not going to work for everything, but... I, I get it. I get why you would do that. Big win for HBO Max and big win for whoever carried that special internationally. Yeah. <laughs> for whoever yeah. had it outside because HBO Max, not international yet. Right. Could it be any bigger? Uh, see what I did there? <laughs> oh, anyway. Wow. Yeah. So the 90s. I, I, I went. I lived through the 90s. Okay. Uh, before we go, um, we have some letters from listeners. We do. That's right. Episode two. We've got some letters from listeners. Uh, and you too can send us letters. I'll let you know uh, at the end of the show how to do that. Zach wrote in and said, Julia, I would be curious to hear more of your thoughts on price hikes, which you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, more broadly. How have they affected various services and what do they need to do to make the price feel warranted? So this is really, you know, talk about the other churn and return kind of thing is the, the turning up the heat, making making Hulu more expensive, making Disney Plus more expensive, making Netflix more expensive. What do you think about uh, basically the ever-increasing cost of these streaming services and, and how mm-hmm. they affect the, the services? Yeah, well, thank you, Zach. That's a really great question. It's what I spend a lot of my time at work um, thinking about. It, so one thing we have to remember is that streaming services make the majority of their money, especially if they are not advertisement supported, off of ARPU, which is average revenue per user. The only way to increase ARPU is to have incremental price increases. And that's why they tend to do it every year, every year and a half. They look at when the best time to do it is. 
in relation to that, we can't think of streaming services as networks, which is what I think we do. We tend to relate, or excuse me, we tend to compare Netflix to like NBC. It's two different things. NBC is a channel that has content and that is what they do. Netflix and other streaming services are bundles. They are, that their whole offering is a bundle. Instead of having different networks within the bundle, they have different shows and different movies that all um, basically allocated together to become a bundle. So if we think about that, when is your core value at its highest? When you are not losing as many customers as you previously were losing, and when you are gaining a, a, a decent amount of subscribers at the same time. At that point, you can say, we can risk the potentially losing some customers in the short term because the long-term valuation based on our trends is is trending higher. And so this is the right time to introduce a price hike. So what, and for us, when I look at that at my, at my job, it's when I can see demand start to increase much more steadily. I'll give you an example. Hulu, for the first time, the time that I studied it, had four, uh, Hulu, between Hulu and FX on Hulu, had four very in-demand shows in the top 10 kind of in-demand across the United States. That doesn't happen for Hulu very often. Plus, that tied into them having Next Day TV with the, refer with the return of fall television. That's your best time to introduce a price hike, especially if you know that you're about to lose a lot of content in 2022, 2023, because NBC Universal, Viacom, CBS, whoever it might be, starts pulling their content off. So you go, we're going to get in now, hopefully lose some on the short term, but really continue to lower our churn on the long term because we have big plays coming through. So whenever you're thinking about it, like, why is this price hike happening now? Look at what Netflix or Disney Plus or or Hulu or who HBO Max has coming down the pipeline. Look what they've recently had and try to figure out they feel pretty good about their next quarter, their next two quarters content slate because they're pretty sure they're going to retain the subscribers that they're bringing in. I do wonder if it is raising your prices the ultimate power move in a way because mm -hmm. you're saying, we know you're only going to spend on a certain number of services and you're not going to drop us. And the more we cost, you know, I know you could overprice it and people will drop you. But like on one level, if you're in the top, you're, I would think, more motivated or at least freer to raise your price. Because what you're probably going to do is kick out some service that's competing with you because they're going to choose you over them. And and right because I, that feels inevitable, right? That if all of these services get more and more expensive, what's going to happen is the average number of services subscribed to by you know a person is probably going to go down. I would think. Yes. I, I'm sure that the market can bear a certain amount of increase in average subscription revenue per user, um, but there's going to be a point where the counterbalance is going to be people dropping some subscriptions in order to pay for the others and prioritize them. And so if you're, you know, basically if you're on a chair when the music stops playing musical chairs, uh, you, you're happy for the music to stop because you got a chair, but you're looking at Peacock and you're like, oh, sorry, Peacock, you're out of the game now. We're going to knock you out. Um, sorry, that was an extended cakewalk uh, musical chairs metaphor there. But you, you know what I'm saying is like, if you're number one, they're not, they're probably not going to drop you. They're going to drop number four. I bullseye and the last thought I'll say on it is what I'm very excited about. And this will be more from a marketing kind of public discourse perspective than actual churn, than not, you know, it won't be churn necessarily or canceling and it won't be acquisition necessarily in terms of growth and subscribers. But what I am interested for in the United States specifically is Netflix's next price hike for the most popular plan will bring them to at minimum $15, which at that point is the HBO Max cost, which for the longest time, analysts and and other people in the industry kept saying oh well hbo max's price is so expensive but executives at warner media you know jason kyler would say you're getting hbo and everything else is basically free like you're yeah. just paying for hbo and you get this free all of a sudden netflix is the same price as hbo max that's a fun moment where you start to look at the quality of those mm -hmm. shows that's a fun moment to say do i pay for hbo max or do i pay for netflix you know if i have to pay pick one 15 um streaming service so i, I think that will happen next year year or so i think we'll start we'll see that price hike happen especially as netflix comes off a pretty strong quarter and they're they're looking at what their next quarters look like content slate wise so yeah keep that in mind that will be a fun little marketing public conversation when that happens and uh one more letter this is from hakan who says thanks for the great first episode speaking of netflix and franchises do they really need that i find that americans are a little obsessed with franchise <laughs> speaking from my view i think sweden i i don't see the big benefit for netflix love to your mothers thank you hack um 
I, I don't know. My my take on it is is just franchises are good because they people know about them already. They have value because people recognize them, and it's an easier sell. Then again, Squid Game came out of nowhere and it was big. So you know there is this perception that to be noticed, you have to spend huge amounts of money for Lord of the Rings because then people are going to be like, oh, Lord of the Rings. Um, it might be fairer to say product lines in a way instead of franchises because yeah. the idea is with Star Wars, like you can, or Star Trek or Marvel, you can keep people locked in because they're fans of this whole thing. And, you know, fans of a show are only going to get a little block of shows every year for a few years and then it's over. But if you can create a product line, you can keep those people fed forever. <laughs> right. The dark side again. We're going back to the dark side. Well, I mean, there was a moment in the earnings call yesterday where Ted Sarandos, uh, I tweeted about this and I deleted it because I thought it was a little mean, but Ted Sarandos was talking about Squid Game and what they kind of thought about it and um, how Squid Game relates to, to your point, Jason, product lines. And Ted Sarandos just basically summarizes Flywheel without saying Flywheel, where he's like, well, if we have products, then it increases affinity for people in the show and it brings them into the streaming service more and then they can show it to their friends and then there's other world interest. It's like, yeah, this is Disney's whole thing. Yeah. Disney's, you don't go to the theme park because, you know, Disney's whole thing at theme parks is that it increases um, affinity for the brand and then therefore you, it's part of your daily life. What I will say about the franchise thing is that Netflix has clearly proven that they can create enough of a string of hits that they don't need franchises. The irony, of course, is that they would like to turn some of those hits into franchises. Yeah. And whenever Netflix says, we don't care about franchises, that's a blatant lie. Yeah. If they could own they Marvel, if they could own Marvel or DC, they would own Marvel or DC. Mm -hmm. Like, but... I think to your point, Hakanda, I don't think you're wrong. I think they are saying we have enough hits, especially globally, that we can kind of be this, this this streaming service that finds local hits and makes them global superstars based on how we operate around the world. But if you're Disney, much easier to say we have six franchise pillars and those are already global brands. And so we don't have to push them. Um, but it is it's two very different strategies. It's clearly working for both of them. Um, and so I think. The Netflix will continue to find their regional hits and try to make them international superstars. But when they can find their franchises like Stranger Things and Bridgerton and potentially Squid Game, they're going to make those franchises. Yeah. Well, I don't know what's going to happen with um, with Paramount and Viacom CBS. And there are lots of discussions about the, the fate of that company and whether it'll be sold off or not. But I keep th thinking about all these big uh, companies with lots of money who don't have franchises. And I think, well, you could get, it's a little bit like MGM and Bond, although Bond is kind of complicated, but like there is value in that and um, you could buy them. And like, if somebody wants to pick up Viacom CBS, they will get Star Trek and a bunch of other stuff. And like, I do think there's a place for a product line. It just makes, you, you got immediate recognition. And so a lot of your marketing work is done and you're going to get people into whatever your product is because they're going to want that thing. And, and you no, know, Netflix doesn't have to have it. Obviously, they're number one and they don't have it. <laughs> but would they turn it away? Do Would they find value in having something like a Star Wars or a Star Trek or a Marvel or anything like that? Of course. Of course yeah. they would. They would love it. So I, I think Hakan is right. you like, we don't want to yes. get too obsessed with franchises, but I, I do think I see why you would want them. And like Disney is the perfect example. Like Disney is Disney plus is a service basically based on franchises and it's done really well. So, you know, that's, that's one way to go, but it's not the only way because Netflix has proven you can just do volume and find your hits and be successful. Exactly. And, and two last points just to add to that. Cause I feel like one, if I don't say this, Jason, and I will receive tweets and emails <laughs> I'm not saying that flywheel is easy to do. It's not as simple as saying, great, we'll open a theme park and we'll just figure it yeah. out and we'll go from there. It's very difficult. Disney, it took Disney a long time. It, mm -hmm. It's a very difficult thing to accomplish. I'm not saying that. But two, I think if we want to look at the downside of relying on franchises, there's um, a little franchise called Harry Potter and they have a series of movies based on Fantastic Beasts. Those movies do somewhat decently at the box office, although the, the the sequel did much worse than the first one. The first one did nothing compared to the original Harry Potter movies. And I would say the affinity for that line and that brand is much lower than it's ever been. So you could say Harry Potter is a massive global franchise. 
but it's not on the same level as Star Wars or Marvel in terms of customer right. affinity, in terms of product lines, in terms of whatever it might be, and in terms of whether this will continue to be a thing in, in the next 25, 30 years. So if you're Warner Media, you've got DC, you've got Harry Potter, one of those franchises much more valuable than the other. And Netflix is kind of coming up and saying, we'll figure it out as we go along. And for now, we have a string of hits and we're turning global hits, oh, sorry, regional hits into global sensations. I have a theory about Harry Potter, which is that the, the problem, and you could say this about Star Wars before George Lucas sold it, right? Which is the existence of the author and the or yes. the owner uh, makes everything more complicated because you look at Harry Potter and like today they wouldn't do Fantastic Beasts as movies. They do it as a, as a TV series, right? They would totally do that. And I keep thinking there is a Harry Potter TV series for HBO Max waiting to be made. Yes. I'm not sure J.K. Rowling wants it to happen. Um and and which is funny because like does she have all the money and she doesn't need even more money? But like if I were at Warner, oh, and and they probably have done this. It's like oh my god the 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 pitch to do a prestige Hogwarts TV series set in the present ish day where every year every season is a year of the school and you can cycle students through and you could just keep doing it for years. Like I do think that that's a franchise that could be brought up to that level but they'd actually have to do that and instead they seem to be kind of caught in this spiral of we're just going to keep making movies and and it's like it feels very old to me it feels like they're so stuck on movies that they haven't you know gotten with the times and i think that that franchise would be better this is my rant about harry potter i actually think it would work better as a bunch of series on streaming and not and not as those fantastic beast movies but you know J.K. Rowling thinks differently, and she's written those screenplays, and I guess that's what what they've got now. So um, I don't know. I think I speak for every hair, especially millennial Harry Potter fan, when I say all I want is a seven part Marauder series based in that era of the Harry Potter universe, and also cool. at the same time, I don't want it right now um, the way that it would probably come out. Uh, so I right. think it's a complicated beast, but uh, well. <laughs> And I didn't even mean that pun, but there it is. <laughs> complicated beast. Maybe fantastic, maybe not. But complicated. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, who knows? Who knows what will happen there? Because I, I, I another little aside before we go, um, on Upgrade, um, Mike Hurley and I were talking about um, how Jason Sudeikis and Bill Lawrence have been saying all along that their initial plan for Ted Lasso, it was a, it's a three-year story. So they'll do three seasons. And they said, oh, you know, and Jason's kids are back in, in New York. And so, you know, he, shooting in England is very hard. So we're going to do three seasons. And after the Emmys and all of that, I saw Bill Lawrence quoted as saying, um, well, you know, our initial story is three seasons. If it goes beyond that, we would have to come up with more initial story. And Mike and I are like, aha. <laughs> that is because ultimately, my point here is, ultimately, the big company backs up the trucks full of money to your house and yes. says, "What? take all the money, just keep making this thing. And it's very hard to say no to that. It's very hard, even if you've got your very carefully thought out three uh, season storyline or you're very you know firm we're only going to make movies for my franchise thoughts and then the money comes the money trucks back up and you go well i mean it's a creative challenge i could do something else right and then the money comes in so i just it, it uh for whether it's harry potter or whether it's ted lasso or whatever it is you know never underestimate the power of these big companies and their checkbooks to make new things happen <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, that's the end of this episode. Uh, if you have a question for us, we, we had some listener stuff this time. It's great. You can email uh, by going to, uh, you can go to relay.fm slash downstream, which is our show page, and click on the contact us link. You can just email us downstream at relay.fm. It works. It'll get to us. You can tweet at us if you want to do it just on Twitter at Downstream Pod. Love to your mothers, no matter how you send us those messages. You can find Julia at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter and, of course, ParrotAnalytics.com. You can find me at Jay Snell on Twitter and at SixColors.com. And, uh, and that's it for this time, but we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, Julia, have a good fortnight. <laughs> you too, Jason. Fortnite, I'm trying it out. It's like Wimbledon or, you know, I don't know, not like the game. Anyway, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.